Uh, happy Father's Day, everybody. Uh, shout out to everybody with us in the building. It is uh, not something that I will ever take for granted to preach to people. And major shout out to everybody joining us online. My name is Jordan, and I get the really great uh, privilege to share with you all today. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about public speaking, I don't know if anybody here does public speaking as a part of your job description, but depending on your specific area of interest, uh, public speaking is a pretty daunting thing, right? So they say that actually people fear speaking in public more than they fear death, which says a lot about what it is. And uh, when I first uh, started preaching, I actually had a lot of experience in public speaking, but most of it was actually as an attorney. So that really shaped the way I actually communicated at first. Uh, when I was practicing law in family court, you had about 45 seconds to say everything you needed to say before the judge was going to cut you off. And sometimes, miraculously, he or she would let you keep on going. But I developed a habit of saying the most important thing I could say up front and then hoping to have more time to follow it up later. Now, my wife is a communication specialist, and that's her job. And she had some very helpful things to say to me when she first heard me preach a sermon. I'll never forget one time she heard me preach like eight or nine years ago. And she came up to the front of church after everybody had gone, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies. And um, this is when you were allowed to touch people. And I knew she wasn't coming up to tell me the sermon had changed her life. Like it was just a look in her eyes, like she just wanted to like, she wanted me to ask her like, hey, what's wrong or what's up? And she was like, well, since you asked, uh, I'll tell you, um, she said, hey, like, really good stuff, you know, and they do the sandwich approach, like, hey, strong start, strong start. The middle, not so, so much. No, but essentially what she said is, Jordan, you preach like a lawyer. Like, you would just lay out your case in the first 10 seconds and then hope that people, like, stick around for the rest of the 30 minutes, and sometimes they did, many times they did not, uh, mentally. And... Um, Ever since that day, I really did change the way I presented because in a lot of ways, I was coming to it like I was presenting a case. So I would say the most important thing up front, hope that people would stick around with me. Uh, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Now, I've gotten her express permission today to go back to the old Jordan, <laughs> and I want to present a case to you all today. I want to present a case for reparations. Now, that's a loaded word. I know that. Uh, our culture and society talks about this a lot, but this concept of reparations is one that if you don't understand this, and this is a really big statement, if you do not understand the concept of reparations, the biblical concept of reparations, the cross won't make any sense to you. At best, you'll see it as a sign of God's love, but you won't fully see it in the full light that God intended it to be. So here, here's what the, we're going to get into today. And I'm just going to tell you up front, here's, here's the point. God requires repayment for every offense. God, who is just and holy and righteous, God requires repayment for every single offense. God requires repayment for every single offense. Now, a few weeks ago, this conversation really picked up a lot of steam in the national news as we commemorated 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre. For those of you who are not aware of what that is, there was uh, in Tulsa a really thriving black community 
that was pillaged and destroyed, and there were so many killings and burning and destruction of their, of their, of what they had built up. And there was a survivor, 107 years young, Viola Fletcher. And here's what she said uh, a few weeks ago as she testified in front of Congress. She says, I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see the black men being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell the smoke and see fire. I still see the black businesses being burned. I still can hear the airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. She and some other plaintiffs boldly and bravely brought a reparations lawsuit, which is now pending, uh, because in this brutal and inhumane attack in Tulsa, uh, you don't just have people who were disconnected from the government. You had people who were a part of the sheriff's office, the police department, the National Guard, and other people helping to terrorize a group of American citizens. Now, here's something that's so crazy. Uh, Viola Fletcher is 107 years old, and 100 years have passed since this date, and this shows us that time does not heal all wounds. There is still a lack of closure in her life because reparations has not yet been able to function and really sow and fill up the gap which is, which is missing. Now, this concept of reparations is something that is thoroughly biblical and something that is really going to help us understand our relationship with Jesus. And I don't want y'all to ever think that anything that we do at Renaissance is just to kind of hop on the train of whatever is buzzy and whatever the current theme is of the week. That's not how we get down. Our goal is to inform all that we do through the lens of Scripture and to help us to navigate our world and our, and our faith with Jesus that way. And reparations is this beautiful biblical concept which lets us know that God requires repayment for every single offense. And absent that, there will never be closure. Now, we've been in this series in, in Exodus for the last number of months, and in Exodus, we've been able to see so many wonderful stories and accounts in Scripture that show us what God is like. Now, if you've ever sat down to read the Bible, one thing that you'll notice is that the New Testament gives us a lot of, like, beautiful principles. But the Old Testament gives us a lot of wonderful stories and accounts of what these things look like in real time. So in Exodus, the offense that we see happening that really is going to show us what um, uh, reparations is like, uh, God's people were enslaved in Exodus for 430 years. They were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And when they were released, they did not leave empty-handed. Here's what we see in Exodus 3, 21 through 22. And you'll see this in the backside of the, uh, of, of the sheets that you got and online, hopefully on the screen. Exodus 3, 21 and 22, it says, And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians, he's talking about his people, that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and your daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, I've just noticed this this past week. Instead of quitting Egypt like a nation of slaves and rags uh, and penniless, they were going to go forth in the wilderness like an army of conquerors. Now, here's something that's so fascinating. 
as they were walking through the wilderness, if they would have just gone out with nothing from Egypt, they actually would have been known to be like a group of just ragtag people. But really what God wanted for them it was to not just leave any old way, but for them to go forth as a conquering nation. So when they were walking through the wilderness, they would have the appearance of people who are not just destitute and, and without anything else, but rather that they would appear and have all of the trappings of a true conquering nation. Now, one of the, the dopest things that I noticed this week in this text is that if you read through the book of Exodus, you see this piece right here where it says that they were getting all this gold and silver from the Egyptians. And later, starting in Exodus chapter 25, you see God's people start to build something called the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is basically like uh, uh, the church. It was the meeting house where God would meet with his people. And in Exodus 25 through 35, there's all of these instructions on how they are to construct this tabernacle with gold for the mercy seat and with these fine linens and all of these drapings and everything that was so beautiful and ornate. And the question is, where did they get all of the gold and the linen to build their tabernacle? From the Egyptians. They did not leave empty-handed. What God wanted from and for his children was not just their release. It wasn't just their freedom. In Exodus 3, uh, earlier in the chapter, you see that God says, let my people go so that they may worship me. God wanted his people not just free from Egypt and the bondage that they were in, but also full of everything that they needed to have in order to thrive and to worship him in full. Now, this is when they left Egypt that they did not leave empty-handed. In the scripture, it actually says that they plundered the Egyptian. They took so much on their way out. And here's the principle that we're going to see over and over and again throughout the scripture. God requires repayment for every offense. It wasn't just the goodwill of the Egyptians. It was a biblical principle that we'll see over and over again. God requires repayment for every offense. In order for us to have wholeness, God requires reparations. Now, I've said this word reparations a number of times today, and I want to ground us a little bit on what I think the Bible describes as reparations. Uh, Number one, it is an acknowledgement of the wrongs done, right? So you can't have anything. We can't move forward in any type of relationship unless there's first been an acknowledgement of what has been done. Number two, payment for those wrongs that are done. And number three, that payment provides closure for both parties. So number one, an acknowledgement. Number two, payment for those wrongs done, and uh, number three, closure for both parties. Now, I want to take y'all a little bit on a biblical survey to look at a number of scriptures, just so y'all don't think that I'm making this stuff up. And I want to uh, exhaust a little bit of the amount of time we have in using to point to how many scriptures talk about this concept of of reparations. Uh, Exodus 22, it says, a thief must make full restitution When a fire gets out of control, spreads to the thorn bushes and consumes stacks of cut grain, standing grain, or a field, the one who started the fire must make full restitution for what was burned. When a man borrows an, uh, borrows an animal from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not there with it, the man must make full restitution. Numbers 5, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, when a man or a woman commits any sin against another, that person acts unfaithfully toward the Lord and is guilty. The person is to confess the sin he has committed. He is to pay full compensation, add a fifth of its value to it, and give it to the individual he has wronged. In Leviticus 6, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, 
When someone sins and offends the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in regard to a deposit, a security, or a robbery, or defrauds his neighbor, or finds something lost and lies about it, or swears falsely about any of the sinful things a person may do, once he has sinned and acknowledged his guilt, he must return what was stolen or defrauded, or the deposit entrusted to him, or the lost item he found, or anything else about which he swore falsely. He will make full restitution for it and add a fifth of the value to it. Now, this concept, I could have picked 20 more scriptures, and we could have been here for the next 30 minutes reading more and more scriptures where God commands repayment for every offense. And this is such a thorough biblical theme that it's not just, not just compartmentalized to the Old Testament, but we see this in the New Testament. Uh, there's a story in scripture in Luke, um, Luke 19 where Jesus is in interacting with a man named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and a lot of times, whenever we have a modern concept like tax collectors, um, like when we, when we hear that in our modern ears, it, does, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to us how hated they would have been. So when I think about taxes, I think about a necess necessary thing that we have to do in America. Um, but for the Israelites, a tax collector was a wildly hated person. They were thieves. There was a system of corruption that was set up, and this dude Zacchaeus was profiting from that system. He was pillaging his own people, pocketing money, and giving the rest to um, the Roman government, and he would have been a wildly hated man. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming into town. Jesus, in the act of sheer grace, sees Zacchaeus in a tree, says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight. Now, it would take us an hour to unpack just what that means for grace to come to us, not something that we have to chase behind. Jesus invites Zacchaeus, or invites himself into Zacchaeus' home, and when he's sitting there, all of these religious leaders, Pharisees, everybody is like complaining and moaning that Jesus would actually spend time with a tax collector. What business do you have dealing with this dude who is so corrupt? Here's what we see happen when grace meets Zacchaeus. It says in verse 8 of Luke 19, But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted any, anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Jesus, his response to Zacchaeus was not, oh, don't worry about it, bro, it's all good. Just acknowledge it. Jesus' response is, today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. When Zacchaeus tells Jesus of his conviction and his plans to repay for his offensive, Jesus tells him salvation, deliverance, rescue has come to this house. Now Jesus responds to him so emphatically based on this principle that God requires repayment for wrongs committed. Now, on this Juneteenth weekend, uh, whether we contemplate what's happened 100 years ago in Tulsa or the 400 years of slavery and oppression and Jim Crow in America, I've been thinking a lot about what that means for us socially. And this American country, we're, we're supposed to have politicians committed to biblical ideals and all the things that they want for us. And yet, whenever we consider the topic of reparations or repayment, those ideals get tossed out of the window. Now, this is not a foreign and distant concept. Um, I was thinking about it this week, even in terms of my own family. 
And uh, I was talking to Aswan this past week, even at our, our teaching team. Uh, so every Tuesday, I try to write a sermon, and every Wednesday, we come together as a teaching team to help uh, kind of frame, and, uh, frame the sermon so we're all on the same page. And I told him, I said, hey, when I get to this part of the sermon, like, I just don't know how I'm going to even respond because it's, it's so emotional when I think about it. But my grandmother uh, lived in Buffalo, and I didn't realize fully what that meant until a couple of years ago in reading The Warmth of Other Suns that so many people were leaving the racial terror in the South and fleeing to cities like Cleveland and Chicago and Buffalo, and they were leaving Jim Crow states where my grandmother was in, in Tennessee. And when I think about all that was taken from her, it, it fills me with so complex of emotions that I, I don't even know fully how to articulate it. So like growing up, Man, my grandmother was the best. She could, like, burn for real. Like, grandma, her fried chicken was phenomenal. One time she made us fried green tomatoes, and I was like, this sounds weird, but it tastes delicious. Uh, and she was a phenomenal cook, and she would always help us a lot around the house. And, you know, when my brother and I would have a shirt that needed repairing, my grandmother, who had spent years working around homes, uh, she would fix them for us. And uh, man, just the sight of her uh, sewing and fixing clothes is something that, as a young kid, I didn't really understand all that it meant, but now I do. So grandma never needed a thimble because her hands were so calloused from picking cotton as a kid that 70, 80 years later, her, her hands would still have those calluses and bruises. That she can just go like that over and over again with a needle and it wouldn't even have done anything. One of the things that, uh, you know, really troubled me later in years is something that, as a kid, I didn't fully understand. Like, when my grandmother would give us a card on Christmas or something, her handwriting was like, like my six-year-old. She was denied the ability to go to school because she had to be in a field picking cotton. And sometimes, in the end of a year, my grandmother and people like my grandmother would work for an entire year, and then they would owe at the end of it. In America, we have established systems of oppression which made people like my grandmother suffer the consequences, and generational wealth was built on her back. And what are we to do with this? Should we just say, I'm sorry, and let's move on, let's move towards unity? We cannot do that. God requires repayment for every offense. God requires repayment for every single offense. Now, I am not an economist. I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist. I do not have the plan for what that looks like. I do not know who it goes to, how it is laid out. So I, I don't know any of these things. However, um, so please don't ask me those questions after church. Hey, what should I do? Because um, I, I don't know that. But I do know that there are some really wonderful and smart people who do a whole lot more thinking on this than I have. Uh, one book that I've really found in the last couple of weeks to be very helpful is a book called Reparations by a friend, Duke Kwan, and uh, he lays out a really thorough biblical case for uh, reparations in American society and what that may or may not look like. Um, but two things. Number one, what I hope I don't want anybody to feel right now is condemnation. Regardless of what your ancestors have done or were done to them. Um, the purpose of this is to extract and to highlight this biblical principle 
that we see all throughout the Bible because it's going to make our faith in Jesus make that much more sense that God requires repayment for every offense. Now, the crux of Christianity is this. God does not show favoritism. God does not show partiality, which means that God requires from Jordan repayment for every single offense. God requires repayment for you for every single offense. And this is why I think so many people don't understand Christianity. This is why I think so many people don't understand the cross, because we somehow think that God could have just said, it's all good, like, I forgive you. But in the context of history, when something is truly done wrong, we know how morally wrong and vile that is to just suggest that we can just skip over horrors and atrocities and pretend like it didn't happen. A God who is holy and just will not pretend that these things didn't happen. And this is not just on a, on a mass country level, this is on a micro you level. This is on a me level. The goal of Christianity and our understanding of it is to understand where we fit ourselves into the story. God, who has created a beautiful and perfect world, has given us dominion over so many different things. We see Adam and Eve uh, back into the Garden of, of Eden, and we see something called uh, the fall of man, where sin entered into the world. And since that moment, you and I have been committing offenses. And God does not show partiality. He requires repayment for every single offense. Now, in Christianity, and even at Renaissance, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, uh, there is something that we talk about a lot, the love of God poured out for us on the cross. I once heard an old preacher uh, preach a sermon saying, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for me and for you. And that is true. But the bigger question is, well, what sent him to the cross? What sent Jesus to the cross? It was our offenses. Every offense, God requires repayment for it, and that's what the cross is truly all about. Now, in order for us to have wholeness with our relationship with God, we need to apply these, these principles of reparations to our faith walk with Jesus that, number one, we need to acknowledge the wrongs that we've done and committed. The beginning of right standing with God begins with an acknowledgement of our wrongs done. Sometimes we're aware of them and sometimes we are not. And it's funny, a couple years ago, my cousin came up from North Carolina and he does what everybody uh, else does when they first start driving in New York City. They get to the corner of the intersection, they see a red light, they wait, and they go to make a right on red. I'm like, whoa, 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 you don't do that. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, you can't make a right on red in New York City. He was like, where? I was like, anywhere. Nowhere in New York City can you make a right on red. And whether or not you are aware of this rule, it impacts you. And to violate it means that you run the risk of getting a ticket uh, and having to pay a fine. Now, I, I know a lot of us in this room, and I don't know most of you, certainly watching us on, online. And when we think about us committing sin or, or, or doing wrongs, some people really push back at that. Really, because I think a lot of times we just compare ourselves to other people. So if you're doing better than them, you're just like, well, I'm not that bad, right? Like, I'm not a Nets fan. I, I'm not that. I have, <laughs> I have morals and things. to. <laughs> I have a compass. Now, um, w when we do that, if we just compare ourselves to other people, we would really run the risk and the error of thinking that we don't have anything to atone for, that we have no sins, that we... We, we don't even have anything to acknowledge. And really, the preaching of the cross, if that's how you're, like, understanding God and understanding yourself, the preaching of the cross, talking about Jesus going to the cross just doesn't make sense 
Because it kind of feels like, well, why do I have to pay for something that, that I didn't do, right? And that's a peculiar feeling to feel like you have to pay for something that you didn't do. Now, growing up, uh, my wife was compliant. So her mother would say, Jessica, go home. And she would go home. She would go take one of those chicken pot pies, put it in a microwave, and wait for her mother to get back home. I was adventurous. I like to have a good time. And this was way before there were Nest Cams and all this other stuff that, you know, praise God for technology. My kids will never get away with the stuff that I got away with because I'm going to be tracking their every movement. Um, but before they had any Nest Cams, my parents were going away for the weekend. And they said, Jordan, do not let anybody in my home. I was like, why would I do that? Why would I let anybody in your home? As soon as they left, uh, a couple of friends stopped by. I invited like five people. They invited like 45 people. And before I knew it, my parents are hearing this story for the first time. Uh, <laughs> before I knew it, there were like 40 people in my house. Yes. Now, younger millennials, Gen Z, I need you to, I need you to pay very close attention because there's a couple of uh, concepts here that you're not going to understand natively. So there was something called beepers. And when you... <laughs> When you wanted to get in contact with someone, you would beep them. So one of my friends beeped somebody, and there were no cell phones, and he put my house phone number into the message that he beeped the person. Another difficult concept, answering machines. Have you heard of those, right? So my parents would call the house periodically because they had no cell phones to see if anyone had left uh, a voicemail, a message on the answering machine, which used to be like a hard tape that you could take out in a race. That's another conversation. Um, <laughs> So my genius friends beep someone, and I'm having the time of my life. I'm getting away with this. This is great. We're having a great time. And my boy walks into the room. He says, Jordan, your mother's on the phone. Yes, that's exactly how I felt. <laughs> oh. And I like jumped up, and I was like, yo, everybody, shh, 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 shh. Hey, hey, ma. Uh, I was supposed to be down the street at my friend's house who lived like five minutes away. My mother said, well, I'm going to call Dante's house in five minutes, and you better be there. The problem was, there's 40 people at my house. Yes. So the, I run out the house, toss the keys of my mother's car to my friend and said, hey, drive these girls home that we had picked up from like 20 miles away. Uh, genius. I was a genius in the making, I'm telling y'all. And... Uh, I left the house, locked myself out of the house, fun fact, ran to my friend's house, picked up the phone, ran back, climbed through the window, started cleaning up, and I exhaled. I think we might get through this. I see my friend driving up the driveway, my parents' house. He's going in, the garage door opens, and I'm like, oh, he's going a little right, you know what I'm saying? Like, I would probably veer by now, but you know, he's... He's going a little fast near the garage, and in slow motion, I see him crash my mother's car into the garage. Yes, more fun. My friends are degenerates. They're all, nobody has money. So then I immediately figure out how in the world am I going to tell my parents that not only was I having a party, not only did I, did I throw her keys to a, a random friend, so I decided to lie and basically said that it was me who crashed the car into the garage. And I was like, well, you know what, the dog came out. You know what I'm saying? 
And when he came, I swerved because, you know, he's our family pet and we love him dearly. So I didn't want anything to happen to him. And uh, my mother was like, oh, Jordy, I'm just, I'm just glad you're okay. My father was like, no, ain't no, I don't care if you're okay or not. Look at the car. Look at the car. The door is dented. And for years, until today, <laughs> I have had to pay the reputational penalty of, for something that I did not do. <laughs> Up until even like a few weeks ago, my dad would be like, I'll be driving a car. My dad would be like, no, no, I'll put it in the garage. Don't worry about it. Don't worry, just leave it out. I'll put it in. And I had to pay the deductible for everything. And it really, truly is a peculiar feeling to pay for something that you didn't do. When the Bible calls us sinners, it's not telling you that you have to pay for something that you didn't commit. You know what, actually? One of the signs of a genuine encounter with God, like a holy and righteous God, is an awareness of how unlike Him you are. So if you read the Bible, like when people come into contact with God, they're not like, oh man, it just felt so good and like warm and fuzzy. It actually felt the opposite. It says the first thing that people feel is terror and dread. To be in the presence of, of holiness, of perfection, it shows us all of our flaws and our sins. Isaiah, when he first comes into contact with God, he says, woe well, unto me because I'm an unclean person with unclean lips and I'm around a bunch of people who are unclean as, as well. One of my hopes is that as a, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, and as a pastor, and as a church, we feel something called conviction. Conviction is not condemnation. Condemnation is you are wrong. Conviction is I have done something wrong. These are very, very different concepts. But conviction shows us by God's grace through the Holy Spirit that we have done things for which we need to make an acknowledgement, that we need to confess, and we are reminded in 1 John that God is faithful and just, that, he will, that if we confess our sins, he will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our God is good and just. So the first step of wholeness with our relationship with God starts with acknowledging the wrongs that we have done. Psalm 139 and 23 and 24, the author writes these words. It's a prayer that I've prayed. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So that's the first part of it. It's acknowledging the wrongs we've done. But here's a, here's a rub. If God truly requires repayment for every offense, how are you going to repay that? How are you going to repay God? So in Scripture, there's a concept called debt, that sin essentially creates debt. It creates that we owe something. Now, we get this on a, on a, on a national level, on a city level. Um, I remember when I first moved into the city, moved into the neighborhood. It's like either you've lived here for a little bit or you have a PhD in like physics. That's the only two ways you can understand the parking, the street parking in New York City. And I first moved in and I was like, wait, so this street on the south side on Mondays at whatever. And it was like I was in the matrix trying to figure out what was what. And one day, this is before I had kids, I was just laying around with no obligations. That was a wonderful feeling. And um, I was laying in bed, and then I heard the street sweeper outside, and that's a terrible feeling. So I, I, jot up, I, I jumped out of bed and like ran to my car, and I saw that beautiful neon orange ticket displayed on my windshield. 
uh, because I had missed the mark, because I had done something that was not correct, I was now indebted. And I think we understand this principle of when we err, it creates a debt. So much so that when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he says, pray like this, God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So sin, essentially, in Scripture, we are seen as it creates a debt. And the essence of Christianity is that uh, we have a debt that we can't pay, and this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. This is why the cross is necessary and vital. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 10 and 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. Paul says it like this in Romans uh, 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, one of the themes that you'll see all throughout scripture is that God is just and he is also loving. And God does not use an arbitrary way to redeem us, but a way that accords with both his love and his justice. And the cross brings together both the seriousness of sin and the love and the power of God. Now, the real beauty of the gospel message is not just in points one and two that we have sins that we need to acknowledge or that our sins require a payment that which Jesus paid. The real beauty of the gospel is the third part of reparations, which one day I hope Viola Fletcher gets to experience. It's closure. Closure. Closure means there is no more outstanding, there's nothing left to be done. This is the good news of the gospel, not that you have to continually feel bad about what you have done, as if what Jesus has done on the cross is not enough. One of my scriptures that I go back to often is when Jesus is on the cross and he says these three words, it is finished. The debt paid. Therefore, you and I do not have to try to add anything to it. You don't have to try to add a good Tuesday to it because trying to add something to it takes away the beauty and the value of it. If you get something that's perfect and you try to add something to it, you, just, you make that, that perfect thing less good. Years ago on my wedding anniversary, my wife and I got a babysitter and we decided we were going to treat ourselves to a nice fancy dinner. And it was one of these places that you have to call like three months in advance just to get a reservation. And they had like a lot of very interesting dishes. They had um, stuff that I was like, I'm just going to go with it. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to close my eyes and eat it. Uh, but it was, it was absolutely delicious. And one of the things that you'll see at like really nice, expensive restaurants is you will never see salt and pepper on the table. You'll never see ketchup, barbecue sauce, A1, nothing. <laughs> because when that chef sends it out, it is finished. And you can't add anything to it without taking away from it. He brought out perfection. And if you want to throw some pepper on it, you're going to ruin it in the process. When God gave us Jesus, Jesus on the cross hanging, he gave us perfection. And you know what I hope for anyone who has placed their faith in Christ? I actually hope that you rest.
I hope that you chill out. I hope that you don't walk around always feeling like there's a debt that you still have to pay because Jesus has paid it all. When he said it is finished, it is finished. Now, I also know that there's some people who don't necessarily yet have this life-giving relationship with Jesus, and you don't even know what it feels like to make a, a declaration of faith and to receive Jesus, what he has done on the cross on our behalf. And you know what? Our pastors would love to walk with you uh, in that process. And if you're feeling God tugging at your heart, here's what I want you to do. I want you to text Harlem to 94000, and one of our pastors will reach out and follow up with you. For those of you in the building, we would love for you to uh, meet with somebody in our prayer team if you have any concerns about how you can take that step in following and placing your faith in Jesus. So I think our actual only appropriate response, whether or not we have placed our faith in Christ, when we hear the good news of that is to respond in worship, to respond in adoration of what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move to that time right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, move in our hearts and uh, show us just how real and beautiful the cross is and that we would see this principle of reparations and it wouldn't scare us, Lord, but we would see you even more clearly. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.